Welcome back to another episode of Stern Chats. Today's guest is the professor at Stern and the president of BuzzFeed Media, Greg Coleman. Greg is well known for being one of the most talented business leaders in the media and advertising industry and is well known at Stern for teaching one of its most popular classes, Digital Media Innovation. So Frank, want to tell us a little bit more about Greg? Sure. Greg has been the president of BuzzFeed Media since 2014. BuzzFeed is a powerhouse of a media company. Every month, it's visited by over 165 million people and its videos rack up 5 billion views. Earlier this year, Greg won Digiday's Publishing Executive of the Year Award and BuzzFeed was named one of Fast Company's most innovative companies of 2017. Greg has an incredible career in digital media throughout the years. Prior to BuzzFeed, Greg was the president of Critio, an ad tech firm, president and CRO of the Huffington Post, president of AOL's Platform A, EVP of global sales at Yahoo, and the list goes on. The list goes on. Now, listeners, on today's episode, we got a little help. With us in the studio is Rachel Gordon, our VP of content. Rachel, when you think about Greg, what really stands out to you? Certainly his attitude. He admits himself that his true talent is cultivating other entrepreneurs and doesn't even consider himself a successful entrepreneur, which I think we'd all disagree. Um, He definitely follows his own path and encourages his students to do so um, unabashedly. His non-traditional take to advertising and media is the same approach he takes with people, and that's great. Yeah, he's phenomenal. Now, Rachel, you're new to the show. Can you just introduce yourself to the audience? Sure. I'm a nerd. I went to Penn. I'm a mechanical engineer, but now I'm transitioning into filmmaking to tell stories. Well, we love stories, too, here at Stern Chats. Absolutely, and we're really excited to have you. Thank you so much for being here and being part of the team. We're really grateful for all your hard work. I'd also like to give a shout-out to our two associate producers, Yen and Naysham, who did all of the prep work for this interview and really gave us all the critical material we need for today. Also in the booth today, we have Derek Fine, Daniel Tennyson, and Bob Kerr. What do you think, Sherry? It's an exciting episode. Should we start the show? Let's start the show. Cue that music. University Stern Campus, this is Stern Chats, the podcast that tells the hidden stories between the lines of someone's resume. In the interest of serving the Stern community, building relationships, and unlocking important life lessons, we present these stories to a wider audience. Here with today's program are your hosts, Frank Fericchio and Sherry Holt. Welcome to Stern Chats. We're lucky today we have a very buzzworthy guest someone whose site you have no doubt visited, Greg Coleman, president of BuzzFeed. Thank you so much for coming. Very happy to be here at my favorite school in the world. It's the best, isn't it? It's great. We are so excited to have you. We've been talking about pitching you to come on the show for a really long time, so this is really terrific for us. But in the Stern community, you are known to us to be a digital media czar and really outside the uh, the walls of Stern as the same. So for those of us who don't know you as well, can you give us a 20-second intro? Yeah, I can. But before I give the intro, I'm curious, why did you talk about uh, asking me to speak rather than just ask me to speak? That's a really good point. Yeah. You know what? I'm going to be honest about it. I think that we were like, this is a very important person. We don't want to monopolize his time. We don't want to ask too much. So we kind of game planned it instead of actually doing it. Yeah. I would say that's what that's what happened. Okay, but I think again, overthinking, really, is the excuse. <laughs> Philosophically, I would say a quick no is better than a long no or a quick yes. So... Just friendly advice to start this <laughs> yeah. wonderful podcast. Life lesson number one. Yeah. There you go. Well, yeah, and I mean, you were pretty you were pretty willing to support it. So um, I think when, after we asked you and you decided to come on, I think we felt very silly that we well, had Well, when I'm done class at 9 o'clock at night and Cherry comes over and says, Professor Coleman, do you, would you do a podcast? Uh, yeah, okay. Oh, well, yeah, sure, whatever. <laughs> right. Well, that's see, clever. See, I catch you at your most vulnerable. No, but see, that's that's just that's just excellent strategy. But yeah, so can you give us a little bit of background about who you are and what got you to where you are today? Sure. I'm one of 12 children, which will describe part of my background. Today, I'm president of BuzzFeed, and I went to Stern back in 
the late 1970s. I attended about 85% of my degree, but I didn't graduate. We can talk about why a little bit later. But right after that, I had an internship and went into the media business. A teacher that I had when I was in college um, was in the magazine business, and it was the one thing in college at Georgetown University that really piqued my interest, and it just never stopped the, the thought of, about going into media. So I was in the magazine business for the first 20 years of my life. And then in 2001, right the year after the Internet blew up, I saw an opportunity to talk to the team at Yahoo and met them, got a job there. So and I, at, at Yahoo, I wound up running worldwide sales, all of the revenue for Yahoo. And back in 2001, leaving my comfortable job at the desk as president of Reader's Digest. Oh, that's a great magazine. Which, which um, is a company that has since had some difficult times, but it was the largest magazine in the world. To leave that environment and then to go to a world that I had no business really of going to, I, I had no digital background, but after the internet blew up, Nobody had the right background. There were no experts in that. So I moved up to, moved out to California, to Northern California in early 2001 and began what has been now 17 years in the digital, pure digital world. Wow. So something that you said to us in class, which I found really fascinating, was that at the beginning of any new opportunity or when you read you know, a snippet of information about a new company that was up and coming, you sort of got this feeling you know, in the pit of your stomach and it sort of grew and grew and that's when you knew that a new opportunity was upon you. Can you sort of tell us about that? Well, in the case of Yahoo, I was sitting in the Reader's Digest gym on the recumbent bike, sweating away, reading the Wall Street Journal. And as I was into the marketing section, I saw a full spread written by Kara Swisher around the rise and fall of Yahoo. And that article literally changed my life. I looked at that and I saw it was like close encounters of the third kind. I saw it. I was completely mesmerized by the article. And I had a lot of friends that had gone to the digital world that were looking to get out because it was not safe anymore. But something drew me, kept drawing me into that world. And I finished my workout faster and I showered faster and I sprinted up to my office and I called one person that I've ever met that had anything to do with some kind of recruiting for Yahoo. And this was somebody in Chicago. Yahoo's based in Northern California. And... I tried not to act desperate, but I just said, I want to meet somebody. He said, no, I, I know the lead recruiter. Her name is Jana Rich. And I wound up getting a meeting with her, and it was like my life depended on nailing that interview. And it was an hour on video conference, and the video ended, and I was like, I have no idea how I did. And then three days later, she called back to say the team at Yahoo would like to meet with you. And that's when I met with the founders, Jerry Yang and David Philo and the then CEO, Tim Kugel. And my solar plexus lights up with an opportunity like that. It, it happened at BuzzFeed and it happened at Yahoo. And it took about four months to get a deal done. It was just maddening. But to do a deal and to then move my family out to the West Coast with no background, no guarantee, it was a chance, right? You take a chance. I wasn't sailing across the Pacific Ocean 500 years ago, but it was something that I just knew I needed to rely on, instinct, um, general experience that I had. And when I got there, the CEO that had hired me was not there anymore. He was let go. And a new CEO, whose name is Terry Semmel, Terry was the CEO of Warner Brothers, who had less digital experience than I did. So we were like two lay people uh, among this sea of brainiac, digital, smarty pants. And we made that team talk to us in lay people's terms so we could understand the business and make decisions. Now, you were an advertising expert when you showed up at Yahoo, but you weren't necessarily a digital expert. But you grew revenues from 600 million to 6 billion. 
what were the main drivers there? How did you accomplish something like that? Well, Yahoo, I mean, in the beginning, Yahoo was really in trouble. So they, when the internet bubble burst, that business model of every dot-com running to you with 20 to $30 million to say, I want to spend this on you so I can raise my next round, so I can create awareness, that all went away. So then it became a simple concept of saying, look how big our audience is, which was huge. And generally, the ad dollars will follow the eyeballs. And because there was such a spectacular crash of, of epic pro proportions throughout the entire internet, we needed to build a business model. We needed to prove that advertising worked. I'll never forget going out to Procter & Gamble in my first three months on the job, and I was presenting. There was still lots of interest in digital, right? So I had this big senior marketing deal that I went to. And one of the brand managers, as I was talking, asked the question. They said, Greg, we understand that the Internet is probably going to be important, but you have to understand I'm the brand manager for Crest Toothpaste. We're not going to sell toothpaste online. And I said, what do you mean? And he said, we don't expect anybody to click on a link and buy toothpaste. And then I looked at the person. I said, oh, okay, that's great. And I said, I, the thing I'm really happy about is on my TV set, they have that button. So when the Crest commercial comes on, I can press that button and the tube comes out underneath my TV. And everybody in the room laughed. But, but the fact of the matter is the belief and how the industry marketed themselves was much more of a direct response vehicle. You run there, you hit a link, and we'll send you merchandise. It was E-commerce wasn't even close to be ready. And then the executive said, oh, my God, you mean you're branding. You, people will see our brand, and they will feel better about Crest, and they'll go into the store. And I said, that's exactly right. No different than TV or radio or magazines, but we're not selling. I'm not here to try to sell cases of toothpaste directly to the consumer. You were one of the visionaries for the digital media space and has helped it grow and develop into what it is today. And conversations like that can be really jarring. You know, you're, you're trying to paint a picture of something that doesn't really exist yet to somebody who is very set in their ways. So how do you approach those conversations to show a path that isn't yet cleared? Yeah. So let me first say this. You use the term visionary. I don't know. If you were on a boat and you never knew how to fish, but there was a fishing pole there, and you got really hungry, you'd probably... Oh, I'd just start fiddling with it. You'd probably <laughs> yeah. figure out yeah. that... I'd be very hungry. Yeah, so, <laughs> yeah. so visionary um, is not the word I would use, but thank you. I would use the word um, necessity is the mother of invention, right? So we, our backs were up against the wall, and the, the goal was to try to attract people to understand that billions and billions of people were looking at the Internet and spending lots of time on it, and there was a way to produce um, commercials or ads, static banners, on the website that would catch people's attention. So um, the most important thing that the industry did, and I was right in the middle with everybody, is you know we needed to rely on research. So post-campaign research, did somebody notice it? Did they t act on it? Did they have purchase intent? What was the takeaway? all of those rudimentary things that a marketer needed to see and hear to say, hmm, maybe there's a good investment and maybe there's a good deal to be had because the Internet is still young. So we, we had to go about proving the efficacy of digital advertising at a point in time where people just were not in the mood for it. But over time, it started. And what's interesting is in 2001 when I went, as I said, for some strange reason, I was drawn to that medium, and a lot of people left the world of the digital. And trying to recruit people to come from the magazine division was really hard. And, and one of the life's lessons is that I always feel that the time to make a move is when it's strongly contrarian, if, if you believe there's something underneath it. So the people that we were able to hire four years after I started, I could hire anybody because they felt the coast was clear that it was good. But the early people that dove in, the ones that had the sense of adventure 
a real entrepreneurial spirit to say, hey, I want to be part of the team to figure this out as opposed to part of the team just to take it to the next level. There were, it was a, a different mindset. And, and by the way, even though a different mindset, not, not all of those early people that raised their hand were the best people either. So we had to go through a whole process of talent acquisition to tell this complicated story. So I, I think it took about a year and a half where we started to really get some traction and then people felt comfortable that it was safe to go back into the water. Now, that's a very strong example because in the case of the people that didn't move from, let's say, print media or they didn't move from a magazine to something else, I mean, I think we all know that that is an industry that then began to like severely decline while what you chose you know, is a rocket ship. Or it, could, or it could have been a rocket ship that hit an asteroid. I mean, it was. it's easy to say in hindsight, it's very easy to look back to say, what a no-brainer it was, but uh, I'm not kidding. The, the, my closest friends were asking me, why are you doing this? What, what do you see? It sounds exciting, but scary. You have a family, you have a mortgage, you have to do that. But that was easy. I mean, for my, my constitution, it was just, I, I had to follow that. That was, that was easy. It was, I didn't feel cr- courageous. I would have felt horrible if I didn't get that job at Yahoo based on how far I'd taken it, I would have felt like I missed an opportunity of a lifetime, and I would have. There's definitely a courage component, and I don't even know if we get into that in business school as much because I think, Sherry, I think in our time here, a lot of us are looking for the next rocket ship, but we don't think about the fact that if we found that rocket ship, would we board? Would we get on it? There is reality and then there's fantasy. And the fantasy is that you find, you know, the next digital media wave and then you're riding it. And then reality hits you like a ton of bricks and you're talking to the Office of Career Development and, you know, you're stuck on your path. But you exhibited a lot of courage when you made the jump to BuzzFeed. And I'm wondering how did that opportunity come about and what is it like growing with the company? Well, at BuzzFeed, I had the opportunity to work with the founder of BuzzFeed, Jonah Peretti, back six years earlier when we were together at the Huffington Post. So Jonah was one of the founders of the Huffington Post. I joined there as president of the Huffington Post, and we worked together for a little over two years, and then a company called AOL came in and made us an offer to buy the company, made us an offer that we couldn't refuse, so we sold it. And then I went to work for a French-based, Paris-based ad tech company called Critio, which was a remarkable ad tech company that that dove into the world of retargeting. And we took the company public three years after I joined. So it was like a wonderful, sold a company, went to another company, and wound up being able to take it public. It was the magic of great, great engineering and technology. And then a year after we went public, I got a phone call from the founder and CEO of BuzzFeed, Jonah, Jonah Peretti, and he said, hey, look, do you want to come back to the family? And I looked at him and I said, what do you mean? I, I just thought we, we would catch up regularly. And he You're said, like, we're still friends. Yeah. And yeah. he's like, no, do you want to come and run the business of BuzzFeed? And I was like, holy mackerel. I, I didn't expect it. I was honored. I was excited beyond belief. And he didn't invite me to go up to interview. You know, he said, do you want to do this? And I said, I think I do. I said, let me call you later. So about a half hour later, I called him. And I said, you know, I really put a lot of thought into this. And he said, well, it's been 29 minutes since you left here. <laughs> it's a solid 29 minutes. 29 and 13 seconds. Well, he was pretty, but he was pretty certain when he, when he gave you the ask, too. I mean, no, what? yeah, there was no. Of course. No, he said, I would like you to do this. But, you know, it, it wasn't, it was much more of a risk going to Yahoo than it was going to BuzzFeed because I knew Jonah. I was an advisor to BuzzFeed. I helped him hire some of the team. I knew some of it. I had certainly seen the traffic grow enormously. But most importantly, I had a huge amount of respect for Jonah. So you talk about founders and you talk about people with technical expertise. He's really got it all. And to be invited by somebody like that to help take the business to the next level was nowhere near as difficult or adventurous as it was going to Yahoo. Because at Yahoo, I didn't know the people. I had no clue about digital advertising. 
this was more familiar territory, but we had a lot of work to do, you know, to be able to to take it, and we still have a lot of work to do. I'm wondering why Jonah specifically, why do you think Jonah specifically targeted you for this job? Because clearly, you know, you have taken BuzzFeed to the, the next level. Well, we work together, and, you know, I call it, I call it during my class at my class, Digital Media Innovation here at Stern, I call it authentic marketing. You know, I have a session where I take the students through my journey from when I left Stern to where I am today, and I talk mostly m more at length about the, the bumps I've hit in the road rather than kind of the cool thing. With Jonah specifically, I think he asked me to come over because I never expected it to happen. He saw me work my ass off at the Huffington Post. We had tremendous results, and we, while we didn't do it to be bought, we wound up getting bought. So we'd become friends. You know, I would check in with him as an advisor, and I would talk to him about how my new company is going, and he was admiring the trajectory of that, and he saw what we did. So it just seemed to be, I guess for him, or maybe he's just completely blind and made a terrible decision. <laughs> I think we all know that's not, that's not true. I think something that Frank is bringing up, which is always super interesting to me and I think to our listeners as well, and something that we learn about at school is that the team aspect of particularly sort of like the, the leadership group of a company is so important. So Jonah, obviously, you know, you talked a lot about his skill set and his expertise, and then he's bringing you in and you're contributing your skills. So in your, in your mind, what are a few winning qualities of a leadership team of a digital media company? Well, I think it's less about a digital media company. It's the ability to hire the best and the brightest, people that are willing to follow you, people that are willing to come in and to join the cause. So coming in, you really have to be able to bring in the best amount of talent. And secondly, you have to be able to fit into an ecosystem so that people on our executive team are really all world. You have somebody like Ben Smith, who runs our uh, all of our news products, Zay Frank, who runs all of our entertainment and video. He's He's the legend. He that guy is hilarious. Just by the way, he's, he makes great stuff. He's funny and brilliant. What he's been able to do with video. So today, video is seventy percent of all of the content views at BuzzFeed. And then you have somebody that runs technology. Her name is Dow Win. We call her our publisher. To fit in with people like that and understand what your role is, and to be able to work closely with real smart people in a in a rocket ship that is evolving. BuzzFeed needs to change quickly and regularly in order to continue to grow as we have. So I'm there and the company is there because Jonah Peretti can see, you know, 25 chess moves out into the future. And we're doing our best to do our part and to understand, I think we can see like three chess moves out. But we need to perform our role, and that's very exciting to work with somebody like that. So that's, that's somebody I would say is a true visionary and to have the chance to work and learn. My problem is that I grew up in traditional media, and I say a problem. So there are some benefits, business models, and some things aren't, are never going to change. But the problem I have is that I could never be a disruptor because my brain has been fused the way, the way things had been. And I look at Jonah, and if you go back, 15 years ago, if you wanted to find him, he was teaching sixth graders computer science at a school down in Louisiana. And he had no intentions of creating two of the biggest media brands created in the last 50 years, Huffington Post and BuzzFeed. But his curiosity about why people shared things right? This is before Facebook and Twitter and Snapchat got him to the point where he began to experiment. He created laboratories. He was just, he was just interested and curious. And that led into a business. So if you're an innovator, what you don't do is sit down and do market research and then look at the research and then put your own point of view on top of that research and then raise some money and hire some people that's a way you can build, hopefully, a decent business, but you'll never, ever break through and disrupt an industry by doing it that way. To me, that 
is the essence of BuzzFeed because BuzzFeed is a very different thing. When a lot of people think of it like just a media company or just a content provider, but really it's a technology company. Or at least there's this intersection of technology and content, maybe in a way that people hadn't seen before. Can you? Ex- but that's exactly what it is. It's we are a technology company first, and the ability that in the tech that Jonah has built, that the infrastructure to really understand what signals are coming back from the content that we produce gives us a huge advantage because we don't have to be just a brilliant editor or a brilliant video producer. We can see what works amazingly well, what's mediocre, and what really is bad. And we can learn from that, and we try not to replicate the mistakes. So if you can test and learn, if you have the technology to allow you to get real-time feedback, what an advantage as opposed to what we did in magazines. Hey, got a cool magazine editor writer putting a really great story together. Wow, sometimes it hit the nail on the head, but sometimes you start to get feedback, you know, six weeks after the story ran. Here you're getting it in milliseconds. It's a big difference. Well, talking about evolution, BuzzFeed itself has evolved incredibly over the past few years even. And in our research last night, Frank and I took some quizzes I am Jasmine of the Disney Princess Quiz. Nice. Yeah, I'm, I don't remember. Turns out who you I'm are. Belle. I'm Belle, <laughs> which I disagree with. I see what they're getting at, but you know she had Stockholm syndrome, as far as I'm concerned. I think I would have escaped the castle, but neither here nor there. BuzzFeed continues to have really pithy, fun content, but is definitely transitioning into a very serious source for for news and events and sort of connecting with people. How are you? helping along your listeners and your viewers and your readers to really trust BuzzFeed as their first source. Yeah, so if you take a look today, we have in in our news division, we have 300 reporters around the world. It's a very serious news organization. Now, to your point, when Jonah hired Ben Smith from Politico four-plus years ago, Ben Smith was joining this neat, website that featured lots of funny dogs and cats and memes and quizzes. The dream or the picture that Jonah painted was to say we have this huge audience that needs real news. We can deliver it. We can get them there. I'm going to give you your own canvas to be able to go out and to do your thing. So to go from the most unserious website in the world, if you guys can remember four or five years ago, it was just fun, and you'd share things with friends. It was a lot of fun. Yeah, I loved it. But to add a hardcore news, and we have an amazing investigative reporting team as well, that seriousness surprised a lot of people, and they thought it was a bad idea. Just because it didn't fit, why would you do that? But as we're watching now, again, this is looking the 25 chess moves out that Jonah does. If you want to be, which which we do, the media company of the future, to have some tent poles and one being credibility and a real serious news organization, that, that went along with it. How do you measure success in that area? You know, that's very different than some of the other areas you guys have been before. Yeah, so it's longer-term thinking. It's not glacial, but it's longer-term thinking. And if you want to capture the minds, hearts, and respect to be able to serve up a point of view, to serve up news, to serve up the facts. The halo that our organization gets today because of news is a big deal. So I think, you know, in the past few months, one of the big things that BuzzFeed did was we released the dossier on our website. We put it out there. And Ben Smith did this on his own, and he made the decision unilaterally Enough people were talking about it. Um, It was constantly referred to on the nightly news. CNN talked about the existence of it. So people were actually making decisions. And Ben said, I have it. I've had it for a while. It's time to put the right caveats because there were some things in that dossier that were not true that we knew. But to say to our audience, we trust you. We think you're intelligent. Here's what we know not to be true. We've not vetted the whole thing, but this is what everybody's talking about. And he hit the send button. The first thing that happened is that because no other media organization did it, everybody, media companies love to peck 
on other media companies. So the New York Times, the Washington Post, CNN were just pouring sulfuric acid all over BuzzFeed for a while to say, hey, this breaks journalism integrity, you didn't have this, but we stuck by our guns. And Ben Smith, looking back, did something that was actually smart and very courageous. And I do think the next dossier situation that will come out, somebody else is going to put it out before us if, if they have the opportunity to. So there are moments where we have to all stand up and make a call, an unpopular call, a call that you know there'll be reverberations and your peers in the media business will mock you and make fun of you and you still have to make your call. Were there any other moments during your time at BuzzFeed that really catapulted the company into the spotlight? Well, there were some, you know, non-newsy things. So one of the big kind of mega hits was we had somebody at BuzzFeed managing our Tumblr page, and one of the users posted on our Tumblr page this really interesting phenomenon called the dress. And it was this dress that confused the world. I remember this. <laughs> because it, to some it looked like it was gold and white, and to the to others it looked like it was gray and blue. Well, hold on. It was, it was gray and blue. Clearly Just, the other Yeah, no, clearly. <laughs> hold on a second. Hold on a second. I understand what you guys are both saying, but it was gray and blue. I'm glad that we've sorted it out. So, so when you ask that question about you know something that was kind of a game changer, we the person thought it was interesting posted it on the main BuzzFeed page. And by that night, there were hundreds of millions of people that had seen it. So we posted it in the morning. That night, I was having dinner right here near NYU. And I'm eating dinner at the bar with my wife. And people to the left of me were arguing about the dress. And people to the right of me we're arguing about the dress. And I was like, hey, I work at BuzzFeed. They're like, what's the answer? <laughs> and I'm like, no, You they're... split up families and friendships. <laughs> yeah. I had arguments over How that How do dress. you sleep at night? <laughs> yeah, but it was a global phenomenon. And we have this great chart that shows you when it was posted, where it spread, and where around the world. There were people in China. There were people in Australia and Japan arguing over the same thing. So it's the ability to spot something and to move fast and to feed it that allowed us to do something like that. So that was a, that was a big one. That was really f a fun day for us. You've mastered the viral over at, at BuzzFeed. You create content that goes viral. Does news go viral? I mean, how do you make something viral over at BuzzFeed? It, 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 not all news goes viral. It depends upon what you do, releasing the dossier went viral because of the nature. Lots of news is not going to go viral because it's covered elsewhere, even though we might have a different perspective on it. But when you get a scoop, that goes viral. When you scoop somebody and you scoop a story, that will, that will pump it out. But in the case of BuzzFeed, what we really do understand are, are the analytics and to spot something that's starting to move and to feed it and to nurture it and to, and to push it out. That's what this technology that Jonah created really gives us the opportunity. It's instantaneous knowledge about how a piece of content is performing. And this can be on branded content as well. We did a whole series of branded content pieces for Purina. We did one called uh, Puppyhood. It was a video. Oh, right. And it was narrated. By Zay. Yeah. Frank. And that was preceded by cat food uh, commercial. That was, I'll think the name, I'll think of the name of it in a minute. But Puppyhood, in its first six days, reached 82 million people watching an ad, you know, which was a well-done ad that was very soft on the advertising, but huge on the impact. So when you are able to deal with commerce and create content for your marketers and get some of those hits, it's pretty remarkable. I think it was Friskies. Was it Friskies? It might have been Friskies. Well, Anything uh, really dear, with... Dear Kitten. Dear was, Kitten. Was the name <laughs> of the ad. Friskies can send us a check yeah. now, Sherry. Anything with puppies and kittens, I feel like, is just golden material. Yeah. It really is. So I want to I ask something that is Sherry's favorite topic, which is getting into someone's just 
personal life, personal trajectory. You're obviously a, a famous guy, you're a prominent guy in your space, but before you got there, you dropped out of business school. How did you make that decision? Because obviously you didn't need the rest of that MBA degree to get where you are. No, I didn't know. I mean, I was, like I said, I was pretty much done my education. I had my final project and I had a finance course. So I'd started on my, and I'm not going to give you any names here, but I started on my final project and I thought I was in lockstep with my advisor. And I went back for my second kind of revision and update. And this person told me that I was completely in the wrong, and I'd done a lot of work, that I was in the wrong direction. I didn't listen to what he had to say. And I was like, you've got to be kidding me. And he was way over the line at being an a**hole. <laughs> I can say that on this program. And, I, and I, it was like, no, it was. I felt like he thought he owned me because it was between me and graduating. And I said to him, I don't need to do this with you. I'm not going to do it. And at that time, I, I had been offered an internship at a magazine company. And I wound up not finishing it going on my merry way. I learned a lot at Stern. I didn't have the sheepskin for an MBA, but I learned, I went through most of the classes. Uh, maybe one day the school will want to give me one. If I teach like maybe in my 75th year of teaching, maybe they'll- I think they'll they can just slide you one. I, I don't want to speak for them, but yeah, maybe just- You're, you're honorary already. Yeah. So I'm, not, I'm certainly not begging for a degree, but, but it was hard. And the chat that I had with my dad, who was like, oh. hey, I paid for this, which he did. And I said, no, I'm not going to go back. And then at that time, I couldn't change my advisor. And then I got busy. And then I just never went back to, to finish it. So I think, interestingly, one other way to look at your transition into media is sort of through the lens of education. You know, you're putting content out there for consumers to read and understand and learn from. And then over the course of your career, you have actually edited back up in education and here at Stern, and we're so happy to have you. What is so important to you about teaching digital media innovation and being a professor here for the new generation of MBA students? So, of course, everything happens by accident. I didn't have an absolute plan, but I do know that my professor at Georgetown University, Harry Thompson, who was the president of Newsweek, when he taught his magazine marketing class, it literally lit something up in me. So part of me wanted to give back that way, but there's also luck. So one time when I was bringing my daughter down to Georgetown University, where she was a freshman 10 years ago, I looked at her curriculum and I said, it's very light in digital. It's, it's ridiculous in this day and age. And I said, the next time I come down, I'm going to get a meeting with the dean and the dean's going to listen to me, and I'm going to point out what I just pointed to my daughter out. And he's going to look at me, and he's going to say, you're right. Do you want to teach? Just that easy. That's not embarrassing at all for your 18-year-old <laughs> so, so I said this to my daughter, and she said, how do you know? And I said, no, I don't know. But uh, next, so like two months later, I came back down, and I had a meeting with the dean, and... He listened to me, and he said, you're 100% right. We have to do something about this. I was working at Yahoo at the time, and he said, do you want to teach? And I said, let me think about it. And my daughter was looking at me going, did you guys rehearse this? Is this real? So I found myself in the middle of the digital world with a daughter going to a college that should have had more, certainly on the marketing side, in digital media, didn't argued with the dean, or at least pointed it out. It wasn't really an argument. And to have this person recognize it and then say, hey, do you want to do this? Because I must have been exhibiting some form. So it kind of backed in. So I taught for three years while she was going, while she was a sophomore, junior, senior. And then um, when, that w when she was done with some ties that I had here to NYU, I was asked to come up and talk to the gang up here. And it it's, it's about a seven-minute walk from my apartment, so it, Ooh, perfect. it makes it makes it easier. But it's been great, and and the the school has been really good to me and open for me, and so I, I think it's been a mutual good good deal for both of us. Well, that's how I got into it. Yeah, everybody talks about your class. You know, I've heard a lot about it. Sherry. Won't stop talking about your class, and you know, uh, one thing that she she told me is the uh, the concept of finding your own thing. 
Yeah. You say your students find your own thing. What is that all about? Why is it a focus for you? It's probably, you know, so you ask about why do I teach? I, I don't really think I want to teach about digital media. Uh, and the example I used last night in class was that a friend of mine uh, who's actually the CEO of LinkedIn, Jeff Weiner, he was my best friend at Yahoo, we would play golf every Saturday. And he would always, at the halfway house, we would get a hot dog. And he would put so much relish on the hot dog and he would say he really didn't like the hot dog, but the hot dog was a receptacle for relish. It was the it was the platform for relish. Right. And I'm like, eating. why don't you just eat relish? And he goes, no, no, it wouldn't taste as good. But so my, my point, um, and the point that I made last night in class, is that I think that the platform around digital media innovation is it's important topic. But my relish are life lessons. My relish is me speaking about life and business. My speakers, last night we had Dennis Crowley, who's the founder of Foursquare, and he talked long and hard about some of the real difficulties he had even as he was growing that company and had the pivots and how he had personal pivots. And it backs into me trying, I think at its core, me trying to get the class to understand what their personal thing is. And that means what makes them tick. Why did my solar plexus go crazy when I went to Yahoo. It was all about the adventure, belief that I could do something. But in my case, it's how can I leverage contacts and respect to be able to hire some of the greatest teams and tackle some of the biggest problems that are out there. That to me is, that, that's how I would boil it down as to my thing. And it took me years to figure that out. But I want people to really feel that are in my class. I want them to get that sense that if they are in a role that's really not optimizing who they are, where they feel like they're treading water, and they, then it's just not good enough. And there's a chance to raise your hand and there's a chance to do something differently. So with the speakers that I have, and we're blessed with lots of really interesting people that come in to talk, I spend lots of time with them trying to steer them down this direction, and I have no problem. I mean, everybody wants to talk about that special lesson, that thing that happened that got them to make the change so that they got into a swim lane where their thing, what makes them tick, um, became the main swim lane as opposed to working at a job and collecting a paycheck, right? Oh, yeah. I've, I've asked the class to think about it, but it's, it's, it's a long-term think. It's not, not so doesn't have doesn't come to you so fast yeah it's, it's like a years-long journey if it was easy we'd already have it absolutely right sherry so what what is the most gratifying thing about showing up at 5 p.m after a really long day and in anticipation of a very long week as the president of buzzfeed like what do you get out of coming and and teaching so with my, I do office hours for an hour before class. So from five to six, I meet with four students for 15 minutes each. And we kind of practice a little bit on how to use that 15 minutes because I have over 100 students and I, I don't, I might seem very approachable and I want to be, but I don't have the time. But I will agree to meet with everybody and to do what I can to listen to them and to um, try to give them some nugget. But in many, many, many ways, um, I'm asked in a short period of time to listen to what they're working on and to give them suggestions about how to look at the world maybe differently, some, something that they may have missed. Some people will say, well, what should I do? And I will never answer that because I'm, that's, that's, um, that's really dangerous. But I will try to give them clues as to how to go about thinking. So with the speakers that we have come in, everybody has to give their email address. Everybody's approachable. They don't have to write back. But there are still, we're, we just finished our seventh class. One of my one-on-one -on -one sessions, somebody said, look, I'm not happy in my job. I really want to move forward. I want to do something different. And they talked about one of the speakers that they had seen a couple of classes ago. And she said, you know, I'm, I really admire that person. It would be great to work for somebody like that. And my response was, have you written that person? No. And I'm like, but they're on limits. It's like there, there's nothing bad that's going to happen to you if you write them and they write you back and say, go to hell for writing me, which they'll never do. That's like the worst case. But maybe somebody will say, hey, thanks for your note. 
And if you write that paragraph, and it can't be more than a paragraph, and in a creative way where you'd like to meet somebody on their team, you have a chance. But the question was why – we talk about it every class. Why haven't you done it? Now we're doing the one-on-one. And this person just said, I don't know. It's just my constitution. And I said, that's okay, but there's no harm. So last night, she came up to me and she said, I sent two notes out. I didn't hear from one, but I heard from another, and it felt so good. And I'm like, but it's okay. You can do that. She survived. Yeah. She survived. But without that coaching, she just wouldn't have done it. Well, it's exactly what you said at the beginning. A short no is so much less painful than a long, drawn-out one where, you know, you're riddled with anxiety not knowing. I mean, that was our issue approaching you even. You know, we yeah, now I feel real talked silly. and talked and talked, and then <laughs> yeah. we finally pulled the trigger, and here you are, and we're, we're so happy to have you. So you're shaping people's future. You're shaping students' future. I'm giving cheap feedback. <laughs> okay. You say cheap. I say future. Six of one, half a dozen yeah. of the other. I mean, you're shaping people's future. You're shaping the future of media, and I think the people are going to benefit are a whole generation past us. It could be like your children's generation. When you think about the next generation benefiting from what you're creating now, what do you hope to accomplish? So I, I don't look at it exactly that way. So as I mentioned before, my, my form of relish, I do want the class to be very introspective about where they're working, how they're approaching life. I, it's like a bit, much, much bigger driver than understanding the business model underneath BuzzFeed or Foursquare or Google or whoever, whatever speaker comes in. So I look at it with class in getting people to really, getting the these really smart students that have never really been taught like the MBA of life lessons to think about that. They can, they're also smart, but when it comes to Sometimes people skills or can I really write that person or can I, can I make a change? I've had these secret thoughts that I'm afraid to share with somebody about different things that I would like to do. I, I try to make it all on limits. So I'm not trying to change a digital landscape with my class. If you came one day, you'd see the speakers, these, these rock stars that come in, they cannot thank me enough for inviting them. The way we construct the class, so our first speaker was Jeff Zucker from CNN. He's the president of CNN. Um, the way I guide the class is much more less, talk to me about how much money you made at CNN and having an interesting president like we do, what has that done for your viewers? We do a little of that, but I'm really interested in how somebody like that is transforming CNN into more of a digital powerhouse, but also, more importantly, to get Jeff Zucker to talk about those times in his career where he waffled, where he was shaken to the core, and how did he bounce back? That is, that's the relish that's far more interesting than how he turned CNN around, right? How do you get up off the floor? And so that's... Yeah, he's a human being too. Yeah, well, it sounds like you're, and you are, creating a class of courageous business leaders. So, you know, we're getting all the foundational stuff in accounting and finance and our marketing classes, but you're giving us, you know, the the word on the street, this is how you get things done. And actually, you know, when you talk about lessons of failure and storytelling, that's a, that's exactly what we're trying to do here. And I love coming to class because it's sort of an extension of, of my work here at Stern Chats. And but on that, exciting. do you have a lesson of failure? I mean, real failure where you thought, this did not work out for me. Yeah, I mean, I, I talk about a whole bunch of them. You know, I don't know how much time we have, but I have, uh, I have lots of those. Right after, so starting in the magazine business, I had a successful career at Women's Day magazine for nine years, and I was the youngest vice president of CBS, and then they gave me this mag- magazine to launch called Memories. This is back in 19... 19- 91, and I worked so hard at this magazine, and we started it up, and we got it going, and our company was acquired at that time, and the new company just had no no desire to keep our magazine going, and as much as I tried, they folded it. They, they, 
they hurt my baby. They memories, f- memories. They they buried it, um, and it took me a long time to get over it because I put everything I ever had into it, and we started to see it lift off. And somebody else decided we're not going to do it. I told the story about when I was asked to come to AOL. I was asked to come by the CEO of AOL, Randy Falco, and um, I went to work for him, and I was there for about 10 weeks, and Randy was fired, and a new CEO came in, and the new CEO, after a week, just called me into his office at 7 o'clock one night, and when I walked in, I see our head of human resources sitting there. And, of course, I'm looking at this going, really? Do you have to, do you have to bring him? Why would you bring him into this yeah. meeting? We're changing the strategic direction of the company. I'm like, stop. Hey, fast forward. Yeah. So I'm telling you, when even though I can explain it a hundred different ways today, getting fired publicly like that was really difficult on me to say, no, I'm really a good guy. He needed to bring in his own team. You know, I, I couldn't stop talking about that. But you know, when you go back and you look at those moments when I was fired and then the meeting was like five minutes and I'm walking out, and then this guy says, oh, by the way, don't go back to your office. We'll send your personal belongings home. I'm like, do you think I'm going to, like, light the place on fire? <laughs> it, it was, like, just completely uncalled for. Did I steal my it, chair? <laughs> yeah. I mean, you know, so, again, people have whatever protocol. But there have been those moments in time where it's really been tough. I, after I left Yahoo, I became a CEO of a tech startup, and I was there for 11 months, and the product just wasn't there and it wasn't ready, and my skill set was not engineering and not product development. And finally, I had to wave the white flag, and that's when I went to AOL. I was recruited to go there. I said, I'd much rather go back to do something that I'm a little bit more comfortable with. So I have a number of those stories, those moments, where it just didn't work out. And then how do you handle it? And that's where you find out the most interesting parts about yourself. When does it not work? And in the case of, in, in, in one particular case where you don't, where you think people all know you and you expect the phone to ring off the hook and it doesn't, that's really hard. And that happens too. You know, now you're at BuzzFeed and you talk about the 25 steps that Jonah has in his mind looking forward. Can you give us a little sneak peek of what's next for for BuzzFeed? To get a sneak peek, we we never really know because things are constantly happening. I mean, when we saw the pivot to to video, if you go back uh, two years ago, 10% of our content views were video. Today, 70% is. Back then, 7% of our revenue was video-based revenue. Today, it's 65%. So we, if you would ask me that question, we never saw, never, ever saw that coming. I do think that one of the core competencies BuzzFeed has is being able to build great content that people just love, and that's without the advertising model. So can we create more content on a content syndication basis where people want to pay us for our content? It's like the model Vice has. Vice does a brilliant job of packaging and getting cable operators and big companies to um, pay them lots of money just for their content. And then that other company winds up monetizing it. So I think you'll see, you know, video continue to be strong. We're producing lots of shows. We have a show called Worth It. I don't know if you've ever seen it. It would be the number two cable show in the country, but it's just on YouTube right now. Um, We have uh, people called the Try Guys that are world famous now on BuzzFeed. We have character development opportunities. So I think you're going to see many more... BuzzFeed produced shows that are just for the internet, maybe they'll start to get picked up in analog and, and around the world. We'll definitely keep our ear to the railroad tracks for that. As but long as Tasty keeps on pumping out videos, I will be a very happy lady. Yeah. <laughs> People love those. Yeah, they That's are. fantastic. Well, you're a famous guy, and you, you've given us some of your time. And in the style of Stern Chats, and maybe BuzzFeed, I think we'd like to know something a little bit more personal about you, something simple. Maybe what's a typical Sunday like 
for Greg Coleman. That could be something fun our listeners like, right, Sherry? Absolutely. So uh, I have two very young children. One is three years old and one is 17 months old. So when you see me on Sunday morning, I am up with the kids myself. I let my wife sleep in. I am at its happiest. We dress up and then we do adventures. We'll go outside. We'll do all kinds of things. So but you dress up as well. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I put warm clothes on if it's cold outside. Yeah. You put but, your cape on, your dad but, cape. But that's the time that I spend with them. I have three older children, um, and I was always traveling, always doing some things, not as present as I am now. So my time with those kids is, that's my happy, happy time. That's so great. Yeah, can you talk about the importance of family to you? I can. I could maybe do my own podcast just around this topic, but I raised my older children out on Long Island, and it was, you know, the classic hour and 20-minute uh, train ride door to door. It was about a, an hour and a half door to door each way. So I was up before the kids got up and I was home after they went to sleep. And as I look back, the one variable, the one simplest thing that I would recommend for, for anybody looking to have a family and working in Manhattan, my time with my children easily trumps having a yard. So I would find a place to live within the closest proximity to where my family was. So today, I'm up with the kids before I go to work, having fun. I have dinners almost every night. I'll come home first, mm-hmm. fool around with them for an hour, and then go out to my dinner. It's, it's from a life lesson standpoint, I wish I have great relationships with my older children, but I wish I could have done that instead of missing them in the morning and missing them at night because I was out trying to conquer the world. You can do you can do it all, but being close by, I can I walk to work with that that's just a ridiculous blessing. That was not planned, right? That just happened. But when I can do that, that makes life a lot easier. That's great. And so, what do you hope that they will see in their future? I just hope my kids feel that they have the latitude to do whatever it is to follow their dreams. And my, my hopes for my children is that they will find something that they will want to do, that they love to do, and can be self-sufficient. So if they can pay the bills and do something that they love, that would be like the most successful child I could ever imagine having. Well, I know that a lot of the mantras that you give us in class, if you grow up around that, I can see them being incredibly successful in, in whatever they choose to do. So I'm sure they love BuzzFeed, too. Yeah, <laughs> exactly, I, or at least well. They, they must. <laughs> I found out with the little ones, their teachers love BuzzFeed. Your father works yeah. for BuzzFeed? <gasps> yeah. I think I'll treat you special. <laughs> oh, well, hey, whatever works, right? Exactly. you got to so, take your perks where you can get them. You're in charge of this big organization. Do you have any favorite BuzzFeed articles? There are... Just too many. I'd have to do judicious answer. I'd have to do some thinking about that. You know, people talk about our quizzes as you did earlier. And Conan O'Brien does this bit to say, just when you thought that BuzzFeed ran out of quizzes, he'll do one. There's a real science behind our our producing these quizzes. It's not just people sitting around smoking pot, running, writing funny things. It's not at all. There's a real science behind getting people, getting that headline and getting people to stop and fill out a quiz, whether they're waiting online to get a coffee or they're doing something. As you guys know, you said you filled out the quiz. That's an art. That's a science around doing that. It's a whole genre that's n- not quieted down. It's simply expanded. And here we are doing a podcast. The podcasts are becoming huge at BuzzFeed. Yeah, absolutely. I love podcasts because you can talk without restriction. You can talk for longer. You can, or you can do snackable. I mean, there's just so much opportunity in the audio space. And a lot of millennials, they consume podcasts almost like a time saver. They do it while they're commuting. They do it while they're folding laundry. They'll just pop the headphones in their ear. So I think we'll see a lot of growth in the podcasts in the future. It's becoming big. And some companies are just, you know, some startups are focusing just on podcasts. And that's where the magic happens, where you have complete focus around one particular uh, area. So that's there's a bunch of that happening. Absolutely. Professor Coleman, you have said it all. 
<laughs> you have said you've said it all. We have learned life lessons just sitting here doing a podcast with you. We really appreciate your time coming in here to talk to us. I got a lot out of it. I mean, it was just everything that I hoped for. Thank you so much for being here. This was really fun. Yeah, you're welcome. Thank you for being so prepared and asking me so many questions that I just couldn't answer. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's fine. That. Hey, did you have fun? I had a lot of fun. Good. That's half the battle, Sherry. It certainly is. 50% and of it. Yeah, I'll, I guess I'll see you in class next week. I'll see you next week. <laughs> All right. Thanks, guys. Thank Bye-bye. Thank you.